you're a great professional, but tell me you're going to get absolutely rotten tonight, like me. <laughs> Possibly. Oh, Come on, Jordan, go for it, lad. Enjoy yourself. Cheers, hey! Okay, great to have your company. The Red Agenda's back, and we thank you as always for listening. Huge week for Liverpool. Stunning performance in Italy and a title arm wrestle with Manchester City to reflect on as well. We'll also look at the five subs conversation, Melwood memories, uh, playing for Klopp, and Harvey Elliott's progress at Blackburn Rovers. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a week. You can read all the articles on Liverpool and so much more, including Michael Cox's piece today on why Fabinho was such a big miss against City. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod and sign up for just a pound a week. That's theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod. I'm Steve Hothersall. Alongside me today, Simon Hughes and Kiva O'Neill. And let's dive straight into the Manchester City game. Outstanding first half. Absolutely captivating. Premier League football at its best in the first half, Si. Well, I love both halves, actually. I mean, I know people had a bit of a down about the second half because it became a bit more of an attritional game. But I think, you know, it shows how different a game of football can be in the course of 90 minutes and I think Liverpool showed two sides in that game the first half I agree absolutely breathtaking football and for even for Manchester City to draw level I thought they were very fortunate but then I suppose at half time Liverpool will take some uh, encouragement from not being 2-1 down which obviously they should have been really because you'd expect De Bruyne to score the penalty but you know on the counter attack that was as good as Liverpool have played I I thought in Klopp's time they, they were absolutely brilliant in terms of the pace, the the intensity with the passing, the energy in midfield, I thought defensively they looked good. But City being City, having top-class players, uh, if you don't pull away from them, there's always a chance that they're going to get back into the game. And I don't think Liverpool capitalised on the the sort of the dominance in the first half an hour enough. It was it was it seemed to me anyway that they, they were trying to do what they've done to City in the past, where you know you try and blow them away in the first opening period and. Uh, they almost did it, but but City, as I said, City being City, are always gonna. If, if there's one goal in it, there's always a chance that they might get back into the game. And the the second half, it seemed to me that the both teams sort of were a bit more cautious cautious in the approach. But I think Liverpool will take great encouragement from the way they defended. Not too many occasions City got sort of in behind them. Joe Gomez, I thought, had, had a really really good game, and, and Matip, considering. He hasn't trained uh, a great deal. I know he gave the ball away a few times, but I thought his his interceptions and his reading of the game, he, he showed a bit of leadership there. And again, Trent Alexander-Arnold getting injured was a, was a setback, but James Milner played very well when he came on. Andy Robertson, I thought, was superb throughout the game. And obviously the goalkeeper is there when you need him. So I, th- I think that was a really encouraging sign for Liverpool because obviously there's been so much talk about... Uh, the defence and and to to go and defend in that way against uh, a top quality opponent, one of the best teams in the world, and arguably possibly could have won the game. I think they'll take a great deal of of um, encouragement from that. And a big bonus, Joel Matip came out of it uninjured, which which is fantastic. Uh, what I was particularly excited about was the fact no Van Dijk, no Fabinho, no Thiago, but Jurgen still came up with this attacking formation. Kiva, that, that delivered massively. Yeah, he absolutely went for it, didn't he? The 4-2-3-1, which was almost a bit of a 4-2-4, wasn't it? It wasn't um, the, the three in midfield we usually used to. Um, 
Klopp was very much going for the jugular there, wasn't he? He was going for the win early doors, which is, you know, Simon mentioned, a bit of become a bit of a pattern against Manchester City. Liverpool like to win the game within the first 20 minutes, which is something you can't do, but in reality, it's something you very much can do if you get a couple of goals. And, you know, we've seen Liverpool do that in the past against Man City. When they don't get the, the couple or even, you know, three goals in that time in the first half or, you know, in a good spell then you find City sort of grow into the game and become the more likely to win the game, which, you know, we've obviously seen in the past with some of the results. Um, so it sort of fed into that, didn't it? That usual routine and both sides kind of not wanting to win it enough in a way. I don't know in the second half it felt that way. It's like you, it's, a, it's a point that you, you don't want to give up. If you lose that game, then it, it gives a big psychological boost, I think, to the, the other team, doesn't it, in, in the title race. I mean, I'm looking at it, it's obviously a much better point for Liverpool than it is for Manchester City, considering as well they, they missed the uh, penalty through De Bruyne. And obviously that was a, a tweeted Optus stat about that, which was completely mad. Um, that basically the last time a player has completely missed the target, taking a penalty, is um, obviously Mares against Liverpool in 2018. And then De Bruyne does it. Like, no player in between has missed the target. They might have um, had the penalty saved or it hit the post, but no one's completely skied it or, you know, hit it wide. So, so Kiva, no, no one's actually hit it over the bar either. No, that's what their stats said, and they, they, you know, they have the little one word at the end, and they chose spooky, which I think it was quite spooky, <laughs> wasn't it? Almost because I was thinking, obviously, you, you know, when every penalty shootout that at least one player skies it over the bar or yeah. hits it wide, don't they? So to have that long spell in the Premier League is pretty impressive, but for Man City to have, you know been the last team to do it and for it to be against Liverpool kind of I think that does I mean people might not think it does but I think it does say about the, the pressure of this game and how sort of that feeds into Pep Guardiola and his team I think there's something Liverpool still have over Manchester City and it was very relevant in in, in that penalty miss I think Another weekend where, where we come out of the games and we're, and we're talking about referees and, and VAR of course Patrick Bamford for Leeds which is a nonsensical one isn't it uh, but even the penalty that we're talking about there Si so Joe Gomez penalised what was your thoughts he gave a very considered and mature response to it afterwards he just basically said well you know yeah. i was run, running as normal I, you know i wasn't thinking about my arm being in the way yeah i mean we've touched on this theme before about when is an arm in play and when isn't it in play i mean i go back to the the situation at goodison park a couple of weeks ago where yari mina his arm is in theory playing sadio mane on but it's not considered in that situation, but it is, even though he's obviously gaining momentum in his feet to run, so he's gaining an advantage, an advantage by using his arm in that situation, whereas in this situation, it's not considered relevant that. It just just means that if it hits the arm, it's a penalty. And yeah, I mean, the rule needs to change, really. I mean, it, it just seems like the rule has been implemented by people who don't understand how football is played. And then, of course, as soon as the ref's looking at it again on the monitor, which we want to encourage... But that changes the dynamic, doesn't it, when we're talking about that sort of situation? 
I can't really blame the referee because he's going by the letter of the law, isn't he? And the directive is that that is a penalty, but that, in my eyes, that should not be a penalty because he's he's obviously kept his 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 arms, you know, as 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 unnaturally as it can be when you're running. You're basically asking players to not play their natural game to avoid this sort of penalisation. And I, I've seen I've seen um, obviously some conversation about oh well, you know, Liverpool got lucky in the Champions League final when. It hit um, Musa Sissoko's hands, but that's a totally different situation. Where his, his hand is 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 totally wide of his body, and he's in a stationary position. So it it just doesn't seem to make sense, you know, that the ruling behind it. I mean, I I just think if you're if if you played the game of football and you get a penalty given against you for that for that, you're going to be very frustrated. But as you said, I think Joe Gomez sort of handled the question pretty well afterwards by the letter of the law yes it is a penalty but i don't mm. know why the rules have changed it feels like again it's being stolen by people who don't really understand how football is played you've got to use your arms at some point if providing you know I, I didn't think what he, he did there was was particularly um unusual you know he, he didn't he didn't outstretch his arm to try and intercept the the pass and i mean one one thing I found quite interesting was you know people, the distance between him and De Bruyne was was quite far, which you might say, well, you know, he's got time to get his hands out the way, but he, he clearly tried to. But De Bruyne absolutely lathers the ball whenever he kicks it, doesn't he? I mean, in fact, the only time when he didn't lather it was when he missed the penalty. You know, he really hit strikes the ball hard, so I think it's very harsh. And again, it's something that the rule makers going to have to look at. It's it's not just Liverpool. This it's just it's it's every week. Which I'm, I'm bored of talking about referees and rulings it's just yeah. like let's have some common sense and and get the game back to the way it was because it wasn't and i understand the way you know for certain arguments around technology and stuff like that uh, i can understand why the arguments are there for that but with this it just seems like a rule change being made for the sake of it i think the slow motion doesn't help does it in the replay no, it doesn't I don't like judging things by slow motion as well because nobody gets to see that in real time. It's 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 not reflective of how the player is thought or his intention, is it? It's just definitive of whether it has touched his arm or it hasn't. It's just, I mean, it didn't cost Liverpool in the end, so I suppose we're not going to hear the manager complaining about it too much. But again, I just think it's something that needs to be looked at because we're not we're still not getting consistency across the board, really. I mean, he's not going to run back defending with his arms behind his back, is he, Kiefer? <laughs> I can't believe it's the year we're talking about arms more than feet when it comes to these decisions. It's honestly just ridiculous. I mean, you listen to Jamie Carragher and them speaking after the game and you, you can't, he couldn't put his arms anywhere else. How, you know, the upward sort of motion, you use your arms to run. Um, so, like, especially when you're tracking back. Um, and obviously, like Simon mentioned there, De Bruyne hits the ball. He's, you know, probably the most vicious of any of any player, particularly when he's in that area swinging one in and obviously I just thought it was really unfortunate for Gomez who had a really another really good game and should be you know commended for that because he's he's been playing again he's been playing alongside every center back in the history of football hasn't he but he's he's just been guiding them through games and I feel like this is a really important moment in his career just sort of stepping out of that Van Dyke shadow almost and saying you know he, I'm not his passenger and and people you know can be my passengers as much as Matip was was excellent as well. You, you mentioned Cara there, Kiever. <laughs> I think I don't know whether your mouth hit the floor when you you heard Roy Keane talk about the the first penalty, the one that Liverpool were given when he described um, Carl Walker as an idiot. So he, he was asked how Liverpool had won it. He said because Mane was up against an idiot, which I thought was a little bit tough. Um, 
Brilliant finish by Salah, nonetheless. 10 goals in 13 games now. That's what we like to see. Roy Keane is great entertainment value. Like, as soon as you know he's on, it's you know that he's going to say something that, you know, everyone's going to react to. So he, he is always brilliant to watch. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Kyle Walker just doesn't help himself sometimes, does he? I think um, there was a, a moment when he followed through on, I can't quite remember who it was now, towards the end of the game. And he, he just, obviously, he was trying to stop the counter-attack, wasn't he? Um, the Liverpool were about to go on, but he, he is, at times, a little bit... A little bit wild, but um, I thought, you know, obviously Mane deserved that penalty, the, the motion he was going at and stuff. Um, and then obviously Salah just scores penalties, doesn't he? He just scores them all the time. Um, so we're happy about that. And his record is ridiculous this season. He's almost, I think he, he might be on track to even, you know, do better than he has done in previous seasons already, which is, you know, crazy to think that, you know, we've got a player who, you know, People would suggest him as a one-season wonder. He is in his in his fourth season at Liverpool, and he's still doing the business for us. So you know, absolutely brilliant. Um, I thought maybe it was a little bit of obviously after the first spell, there was probably a little bit of attack and overkill. And we probably did need someone to sort of drop into that midfield. I think you know Fabinho was really missed, and obviously Thiago as well. We've got still got so much to look forward to in in his performances to come, haven't we? Slightly going off off track, and if we're talking about Salah and his his goals, of course, this weekend there was that narrative about Spurs and the fact that at this stage it looks like they've got a player that might be closing in on Shearer, Henri, Rooney, and Fowler in the greatest ever goal scorers. Where where do you place some of the Liverpool players within that list, Si? Pick up on this one, because Harry Kane is is closing in on Shearer. Well, I say closing in, he's still got quite a way to go. What what Liverpool players make it into the maybe top five greatest ever Premier League goal scorers? Or Will Salah? Well, it, it depends whether you define it just on the actual statistics or the, the general sort of contributions to the team. I mean, I think the difficulty talking about Liverpool, Liverpool's current front three in this in this context is that you wouldn't you can't really place them either of them as natural center forwards really i mean it Mane and salah are wingers who are playing in a narrower part of the pitch and obviously Firmino isn't a center forward really is he so i think that's why they, they, they might lose points in the conversation where you think of harry kane you know i know he wears number 10 for something but he, he's a number nine really isn't he? you know right up at the top of the pitch who who you know plays a lot like Shearer? I mean, I think Kane's an absolutely brilliant player. I love watching him play. Every time he he plays against Liverpool, particularly at Anfield over the last five or six seasons, he's just been an absolute handful and one of the best centre forwards that I've seen. Um, but I, I, I think that I think that Salah's Salah. The encouraging thing about Salah is he seems to only be getting better as well. I mean, I think his performances this season have been absolutely sensational. His general plays, his work with. Back to the goal. It's back to the goal. There was some moments there yesterday where, you know, I think me, me dad was, was comparing to like Kenny Dalglish almost as backing into the goal, uh, into the player winning free kicks. Yeah. He set up that chance for, for Trent Alexander-Arnold, didn't he, as well? You know, his awareness of the, the space around him, I think, has got better. So that's a really encouraging thing, I, I think, for Salah, because I, I think there's still, still some distance to go with him. He doesn't seem to be, to be slowing up at all. Mane... For me, again, I mean, he's not a centre forward, is he? So it's difficult to have that conversation. I would say you you can't really pin him down as to being one thing. He's he's quite a unique player, isn't he? And I thought the first half against Man City, he just looked unstoppable. That was the one of the, the one disappointments I'd say from the game is that 
the second half, Liverpool couldn't really get him involved, and you could you could see he was like sort of coming more infield again and and tracking back a lot more to try and help yeah. out. But in an attacking sense, that sort of threat against Kyle Walker stopped. But in the first half, he absolutely had him like totally. And I think when he's on it, like he's he's just unstoppable, isn't he? And I just love how dynamic he is, how quick he is, how aggressive he is, how nasty he is. He's got every sort of characteristic he'd want in a in a in an attacking player. So they're right up there, but I don't really, I'm not really one for making rankings. Really, I just sort of appreciate them all for being what what they are, and they're mm. all very different players. All the players that we mentioned there. If you're talking about the closest to Shearer in terms of stylistically, you'd probably you can understand why that Kane's in that conversation because of his power, his his link up play, his obviously goal scoring record, his physique, everything else. It is probably the closest it's been to Shearer, but. The other players in terms of their impact and their uh, influence on the Liverpool team has, has arguably been just as great, if not greater, than Kane has been on Tottenham. Yeah, Harry Kane, absolutely mesmerising. Third quickest player to ever reach 150 Premier League uh, goals. That's behind uh, Alan Shearer and Sergio Aguero. It's the Red Agenda. I'm Steve Hothersall. Simon Hughes and Kiva O'Neill are here. Liverpool suffered an injury in the draw with Manchester City to Trent Alexander-Arnold. It's rare, Kiva, that he's not playing every minute of every game. I don't know whether that's the way you fit, but, but it always seems to me like he's always on the pitch for Liverpool. So when he came off and he he just pulled up and he felt his calf, you thought, oh, that, that's really unusual. Now, the conversation afterwards started again by Jurgen Klopp was the one around too much intensity on players, too many fixtures, no time for recovery, not enough training. Premier League should do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think he's got every right to, to be angry, hasn't he, with you know the amount of injuries Liverpool have had in particular. Obviously, there's ones you can't sort of thingy, which is like Van Dijk, you know, that's just an unfortunate in a completely different way. But when are these kinds of muscle injuries, you know that obviously it's taken a toll on the players, even such a young, energetic player as Alexander-Arnold is. You know, he's probably what, Liverpool, probably one of the fittest teams in, in world football. Um, we know that, but obviously, you know, playing this much and obviously training this much as well is, is not going to help anyone and um you know it looked to be a bit of a, a niggly one didn't it on the on the back of his of his calf and he, he went down and sort of was you know just sort of saying yeah that that me, me race is running yeah, which is you know very unexpected because he's a player who rarely misses any games through injury obviously he had a, i think a bit of a a minor injury in the summer that you know um, made him not have a pre-season and then obviously that didn't help him in terms of just sort of getting into the swing of things. I think it's took till around now for him to really start hitting his peak um, and, that, and that's more so defensively as well because, you know, we know his excellence going forward and the quality he possesses. But yeah, I think Pep Guardiola maybe call it a disaster or something like that after it as well. You know, he's not happy about not making subs as well and, you know, I think they're both both wanting five subs in, in the Premier League, which is what it is in the Champions League. But obviously, interesting caveat to that is that Pep Guardiola only used one substitute <laughs> and um, Liverpool only used two. So, you know, they didn't use all the subs. But yes, I think they still want them available. It's a game that you probably, you know, you rarely change your sort of your personnel because you just want to... It's almost like, I don't know, there was some kind of like, I felt a fear in that second half. Just like no one wanted to win it enough, like I mentioned before. Obviously they do, but you don't want to lose it. So it's kind of like, let's not change anything too much and just kind of like make the changes that were really required. Um, 
obviously, I think Bernardo Silva come on for Manchester City and had a good spell, but then obviously James Milton will come on and as Simon mentioned, he he done really well sort of keeping him quiet, didn't he? So this is a drum that managers are going to continue banging, isn't it, Si? Um, Richard Masters put it to the vote for Premier League clubs and they decided on, on mass that they shouldn't have five subs. Should Richard Masters have just made the decision himself that, yes, you are, <laughs> gonna, you are all going to have five substitutes? Yeah, I mean, I think Richard Masters has a lot to deal with, hasn't he, over the course of the last six months, relatively new into the position. I can understand the criticism because, obviously, the schedule and the games at the moment is just, just relentless, isn't it? It feels that way anyway. I mean, it, some days I, I, I find out the next morning there's been the Premier League game on and, you know, clubs, the regularity with which clubs, particularly in Europe, are playing, it seems to have in, it feels like it's increased. I mean, I... I would I would be in favour of it if it was just for this season in terms of obviously it being a very unusual season with the, the season starting in September. I, c I can understand the arguments on the basis of that, but as in terms of the future of football in the long term, I, I totally disagree with having five subs. I think it certainly didn't contribute towards the spectacle of a lot of the games towards the end of last season, although... I understand there were a lot of dead games last season, so maybe that contributed towards the slow uh, stop-start nature of some of the games. But I just think in the long term, three three is more than enough. You don't want like sort of a American American football style system where there's players coming on and off all the time, because it does benefit the bigger teams, particularly if that was to be the case in normal circumstances without the pandemic. You can't have teams with massive. You're rewarding teams with bigger squads essentially. So. This season, I think it's fair to have the conversation. I was quite impressed by Solskjaer in many ways, you know, that they got a good result at Goodison Park and he still sort of used the platform to talk about it. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the, the, the pressure cranks up on the Premier League and Richard Masters over the next couple of weeks because I, I just think the injuries are going to keep keep uh, mounting up, aren't they? It, it seems, it, I think it's a, it's a new challenge for football clubs this in terms of the the regularity of the games. It looked absolutely shell-shocked, did Trent? Let's hope um, it's an injury that can be resolved quickly. Right, Liverpool started the weekend top of the Premier League. Didn't finish it in that manner. You had Southampton on, on Friday night. Leicester City now currently top. But what do you make of the way the, the position at the top of the table is consistently changing at the moment, Kiva? It's a, a rare one, isn't it? Um, and these are teams as well that sort of... You know, Leicester had a good spell and then I think they got beat a couple of times, didn't they? And we kind of stopped thinking of them in that way. And then now they've, I think, won three games on the bounce and are looking very much, you know, like contenders almost, aren't they? And um, the same sort of thing with, with Tottenham. You know, they haven't always had the best results, but they're putting wins together. Southampton as well have been impressive. Chelsea are quietly going about the business. Aston Villa are sort of, you know, recovering from their little laps after that, after the big Liverpool win, and obviously they got a, a big win against Arsenal last night. Um, it's it's just bizarre, isn't it? You feel like eventually these these teams will fall away, as did Leicester, you know, when it got to got down to a uh, last season on, on Boxing Night, um, you know. But I think it it is interesting just to sort of think how much you know the the stronger teams on paper um, are struggling, you know, Man United obviously got an important win um, to take them 14th in the table. I think they were 15th before that, which, you know, is is shocking. But, you know, at the same time, is it really? And I don't, I, I just think it's, 
it's just such an interesting season. I think, you know, we, we did talk about it in the, in the opening weeks and I feel like the goals have dried up somewhat, haven't they? It's, you know, we're not seeing them crazy score lines anymore. I think we've kind of got into the the gist of things now and and the scheduling and stuff. But And when you look, I think, as well, at the table, there's, like, I think there's eight points which separate, say, like, Leeds and United to the very top, which is, you know, last se- this time last season, Liverpool had an eight-point lead over... Manchester City, I think, going into the like the international break round about this time. So it just shows, I think, that, you know, a lot of teams have, have got a lot to give and I think a lot of them are benefiting from just, you know, the, the onslaught of fixtures. The table hasn't quite settled into any normality, has it? Right, um, we're not going to go overboard on Atalanta, but just um, a, a mention on Jota's hat-trick, uh, Sam. Last week we, we were talking about whether he should be included for that game and for the City game after he scored the winner against West Ham. Well, of course he should. And um, and given the opportunity in the Champions League midweek, fabulous hat-trick to watch. The second goal, I, I think, was the pick, dragging the ball out of the air with one foot, dispatching with the other. Great all-round display from him. Brilliant. I mean, you've got to give the club's recruitment staff a lot of credit for that one because... Uh, I mean, I, I like Jota when he was at Wolves. I remember last season, like in both games against Liverpool, I think he came on in the second game at Molyneux, but he always seems to affect the game. But I wouldn't have said naturally, you know, go and sign him. You've, you've got to go and get him. But he just seems to be uh, another player in, in the sort of the mould of Mane and Salah who can affect games. And I, I, just, I just, again, I, I love his aggression. And I, I think that, that that was evident against Atalanta, who were pretty pretty slow at the back and he just didn't give them a moment's peace and thoroughly deserved to get to get his three goals. I I thought the the third goal actually when he rounded the keeper was 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 a really hard chance to finish. You know, I think sometimes goalkeepers come flying out and players duck out of challenges, but he, he was very clever there and not an easy finish on his left foot even after after he's taken it round the keeper. So he deservedly played against Manchester City in the end. I know we had the conversation last week and Klopp uh, fooled us all by playing everybody. So, yeah, it almost worked against City as well, as, as we've said already. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to be excited about with this, this sort of front four, five, six of players. Even Shaqiri got on, didn't he, against City? And I think he will contribute at, at some point this season in big moments because that's what he delivers, big moments. And I'm, I'm pleased that he's back in. So a lot to be excited about Liverpool going forward, I think. And that was a classic European performance by Liverpool. I mean, we were predicting last week, Kiva, that it was going to be one of the toughest group games. It didn't quite materialise like that. And it was a brilliant response on the RB Leipzig official Twitter account afterwards because Atalanta put a post on saying the result of the game and, and then RB Leipzig responded with chin up, we know how this feels. And when Liverpool are at their best in Europe, they're pretty unstoppable. Yeah, it was so nice to see, wasn't it? Because I, I can't remember a performance I enjoyed as much as that one in the past few months. And, you know, that, I think that says a lot because Liverpool won the Premier League not long ago. Um, but, you know, they come back, didn't they, after the restart and weren't, you know, exactly themselves. And, you know, we've had some commanding performances this season, but it's been tough as well, hasn't it? So that was just nice to, you know, to win by such a fine margin and to have a, a new sign and just come up trumps as um, Jossa did, you know. Um, the goal Simon was talking about, I absolutely loved the way he sort of rolls the ball under his foot and how he has time and control to do that. That was just so impressive. And obviously, you know, I mean, he didn't score against Manchester City, but he started and I think, you know, that puts to, to bed that sort of um, question, doesn't it? Jurgen Klopp, I think, will, will be happy to 
to play him throughout the season. I think he's got a got a long career ahead of him. He scored plenty of, of goals for Liverpool. Um, the Champions League's always nice, isn't it? I think it's like a you know Liverpool have started so well in it, but it's almost like a. I always find it's like quite cathartic just to watch because it's not the stress of the Premier League, and we know how important every point is in that. But I think the group stages of the Champions League are always quite nice because you know the past couple of years Liverpool have, have got beat, haven't they? In the and think in the first games and you know still managed to sort of come through, which isn't good for the heart. But you know we always know that they, that they can get there and get through it. But now I mean we're in a, a really good position in. The, you know the next game. I don't know quite how the maths work. Don't ask me on that. But you know, I think Liverpool can probably go through with a couple of games to spare. Hopefully, at least one game, and you know that'll that'll do wonders for Jurgen Klopp, won't it? I think, and and um, and the players, he can he can rest for those games. But yeah, I think as I say, the Champions League's just going to be really enjoyable, and especially when we get players like Thiago back. You know, that's his bread and butter, isn't it? Uh, European fixtures, we know that. So. Yeah, a lot to look forward to there. This is the Red Agenda. I'm Steve Hothersall. Simon Hughes, Kiva O'Neill here this week. Uh, James Pearce with a little bit of a, a break. He's doing his doggy daycare for a couple of weeks. We'll welcome him back um, sometime towards the end of November. Let's have a look at Melwood. Um, place full of nostalgia and a place which is now part of the club's past its history because it's been the home for first team training facilities for many a year but they've headed up to Kirby to this uh, ultra new swanky site which has been developed next to the academy so decades of memories left at Melwood in West Derby from a personal point of view I remember joining uh, Radio City in Liverpool in the, the mid 90s and that was where we were sent we were sent up to the entrance on Crown Road so not even the the swanky building that's currently there that, that the press would go to. It was on the other side of Melwood. And that was a case of going through the gate and walking past just the players' cars to what was a fairly small building. And I don't know, asking you Steve McManamans or Robbie Fowler for an interview as, as they came out at the end. Things developed and they moved to the other side. But I've always found them fascinating, Si, these these training places you know behind big walls the idea that there's secrets kept behind there and melwood's been one of those yeah i mean i i remember the the first time i went in and there's always a few nerves attached because obviously you're going into a, a place of work filled with footballers people that you've seen on tv and I, i've got to say i've always found that the place to be very very welcoming i mean i've been to quite a few football club training grounds in england and across europe and you always made to feel very welcome there i'm not just saying that because it's liverpool even in the times where there's been difficult periods particularly under hicks and gillette it always it always felt like you were made welcome and trusted and i like that um i mean i remember the very first time i went to do an interview there it was quite funny because i was interviewing jamie carragher and uh he just he decided to do the interview for some reason, having just come out the shower in his towel, and his towel is is his towel caught on the door handle, and he ended up doing the interview in his underpants. <laughs> and I always remember thinking, this is this is a bit weird. Does this happen every single like training ground players just roam around with no clothes on? And you know, there've been some absolutely great moments, you know, and personally just just sort of. Uh, seeing things and experiencing things that, that well, I suppose most people don't don't get to see. I mean, uh, the personal highlight would have been to to go and 
uh, I was I was doing a piece with Luis Suarez who was trying to understand how he took I think he'd scored a few free kicks for Liverpool and try and analyse how you know his technique and everything else and I ended up going in goal for some of the free kicks it was absolutely brilliant and then Brendan Rodgers put it, put, uh, cut that interview short because he thought Suarez was going to get injured because he was putting too much effort into it. Um, <laughs> with, with, with some Suarez up, I, I didn't I didn't lay a hand on any one of the free kicks, by the way. Um, but there's other you know other moments as well. I remember waiting there for um, to interview Roy Hodgson when he became Liverpool manager. It turned into a ten hour wait, um, and and Roy Hodgson. Uh, I ended up doing the interview actually on the phone with Roy, who was who was particularly prickly and, and and sounded quite tired. And then I remember the next day, I was at Melwood again for another interview, and he scuttled up the stairs and I tried to introduce myself. I just said, "Oh, I'm, I was the idiot phone you up repeatedly yesterday," and he he just said, have, "I have no memory of that," and just ran up the stairs. Uh, so that was a, that was like quite a disappointing moment when from Liverpool's newly appointed manager. But yeah, all, all, all in all, you know, it's 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 quite sad to be moving on. I think because it's obviously changing times and and a lot of history there. The number of players who played for Liverpool and have and it, it it seems to be you know a place which still has secrets. I think I think it goes back to to obviously the the Shankly period and and the boot room and having you know this this amazing football team that that seems to win year on year and. I know about the stories with coaches sort of turning up from foreign countries and trying to find out what made Liverpool so successful. And I think the boot room and Melwood are sort of the two the two places that you associate with that because that's obviously where hey, the the coaches spent the most time in the boot room and the and the well not the most time but a, a large chunk of the time after matches. And then obviously Melwood was the place where the, the players trained. So yeah, sad to be moving on. Um, but I, I guess that you know you can't stand still. And Jurgen Klopp identified this this change that was needed pretty much within the first six to 12 months of him becoming Liverpool manager. It's very much his his call. And just as Gerard Houllier made a, a big effort to revolutionise the club to some extent by making the, the change that you that you suggest, that you referred to there, where they, they moved the location of the, the actual indoor facility to another part of the land. You know, I think this will be a big legacy of Jurgen Klopp's when, when he chooses to, to leave the club eventually. I mean, without wanting to sound a bit a bit weird, when I was young, a couple of things that intrigued me, prison walls and what was behind them, and football training ground walls and, and what was <laughs> behind them. And when you when you turn up to Melwood, or you, or you did do 20 years ago, and there's people stood on bins just trying to get a, a, a glimpse of what's going on, and you're thinking, wow, they're, they're privileged. They, they can see over this wall. And then you hear the stories of, I don't know, a, a Gerard Houllier, who took a room in a house, did he say, so he could watch training over the wall? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, there was a story, wasn't there, about... Uh, didn't they... Liverpool had a Colombian coach at that time um, who who ended up becoming the national team manager for Mexico who bought... Oh, sorry, rented out a house, uh, I think, on a, maybe on Daysbrook Lane or one of the roads that was just behind Melwood. And I think they used to go in and watch from there, which, which sort of, you know, sort of... You can imagine Gerard they doing that, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> telescope out yeah. of his window. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about your personal uh, reflections, Kiva, on Melwood, what it's meant to you or, or just thoughts, you know, knowing what was going on there? 
I mean, it's such a special place, isn't it? Obviously, we've got that personal sort of having been there experience as well. Um, so the first time I went was obviously, I think I was on work experience with the Echo. And, you know, at the end of the week, it was always tradition that you'd go to the press conference type of thing. The work experience always got taken. So went with James Pierce actually. And, um, yeah, it was just like, you know, I, I got home that night and was just buzzing from it. Like, oh my God, I was at Melwood today. Like it felt like such a, you know, a massive step in, in my life almost, you know, as a fan and just being there and seeing Jürgen Klopp and, you know, just being around it. It was just like, you know, wow, because, you know, I sort of had that, like what goes on behind the walls and then you, you're behind the walls and you're kind of in there and, you know, it's um, just a, a really you know, magical place, isn't it? And then mm. I've, you know, been there a few more times and got to watch open training before, I think the, the a few of the Champions League games last season, maybe the season before. And, you know, that's quite, you know, you, a moment that you don't expect to be having as a as a fan growing up, you know, being able to watch the, the best team in the world of, as they have been in, in the past couple of years, just, you know, training and, you know, seeing what they get put through and, you know, them just walking past you and you kind of just like, after a few times, it becomes this sort of normal thing. And it's like, you know, that should never really be normal, should it? Because it's, you know, truly amazing. And we are truly blessed for some of the experiences we we get. And then obviously I've got a piece coming out this week. So keep your eyes out for that, um, which is all about Melwood. And, you know, it's quite emotional. I haven't spoken to the people I have and hearing some of the stories. And, you know, I think you, you talk there about, you know, people people climbing climbing the walls and standing on bins to get a, a glimpse. It's Melwood was very much a part of the community in West Derby, wasn't it? It was just plonked in the middle of houses basically. And um, you know, it's got such a great history from when Liverpool went there in, in the fifties and then obviously Shankly arrives in nineteen fifty nine and sort of, you know, lays down the markers almost of how we see Liverpool playing today and uh, the philosophy and you know to think all those legendary figures have, have, have been through there and spent the the time there it's emotional that they are leaving but obviously you know now they'll have to have to take that to Kirby with them and I think like Klopp said um, ahead of the Man City game you know it's sad to leave here but we're taking all these people and the people are, who work day to day in Melwood I think will will are the most important aren't they and and they make it what it is. So obviously, I think they'll they'll find the the feet of Kirby. But you know, as I say, it's emotional to know that some of the secrets in that soil, and some are just the. I mean, pictures Shankly and Paisley, Fagan, and the likes. It's quite sad, isn't it? But I mean, wouldn't mind having a house on there when they're built. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, Steve, I, I should uh, I should speak on James's part here because James actually scored a, a hat trick at Melwood once. You heard that story, right? Against who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really know whether I want to big him up that much, to be honest. But we we, we had a game. Um, it was just before. It was in 2014 when the Legends had a game at, at Anfield, and they used the local journalists as uh, as a warm up. And we actually had the temerity to to take a four one half time lead. Um, and three of those goals were scored by James, um, <laughs> which, which yeah, he's like a cannonball up front, honestly, just oh. just set off, race around Jan Molby uh, and, and scored a hat-trick. I actually scored the other team's goal, that's why I'm really mentioning this story, because um, obviously to score a goal at Melwood is, is, is pretty exciting. But then, unfortunately, they, they sort of realised how, how ridiculous... It would look if they were to lose to us and ends up winning the game. I think uh, I think it was six five in the end, which is obviously 
real reflection on the standard of football from us in the second half. But um, I think you've just thrown this in because you know James will be devastated that, that he can't yeah, actually contribute yeah. to it. Yeah, one hundred percent. Because he'll he'll probably have his own version of events, of course. But uh, yeah, I just remember Jan Molby played in goal. He actually didn't have a goalkeeper the first half, so that's why he scored a hat trick basically. But but Jan Molby came into midfield the second half, and nobody could get near him. His passing was oh. just incredible. Even Aldo, I know you. I know you're a big fan of Aldo, yeah. but Aldo's strength. He was just like a bear. You couldn't get around him. Um, but I, I must say that I must say that the games turned on a dubious handball decision given by. Uh, Liverpool's press officer against me, which allowed Kenny Dalglish to get a penalty. Pierce, the original uh, Diogo Jota, uh, absolutely fabulous. Mm. We, we should mention at the moment on the site, there's a great article about playing for Jurgen Klopp and what it's like to play for him. And it's focusing on the training ground, the importance of the place and the work that goes into the players there. And it also makes you think about how a manager can influence the feeling within a training ground. And, you know, I know this and you're, you're probably agree with this site different managers impose a different sort of feeling on the training ground when Roy Evans was there it was everyone was welcome and buzzing there was a decent enough period with Jared Hooley and then there was a period where literally you lived in fear of going to every press conference there was an awful period with Roy Hodgson there was Rafa who literally wouldn't let visitors go up the stairs you, you couldn't go into the cafe could you you weren't, you weren't allowed in there and then there was Brendan who just opened the doors to, to everyone um, and it's interesting how they put their stamp on the training ground. Yeah, I, I definitely think the mood of a training ground is reflective of the team's manager at the time. I totally agree with that. Um, obviously, you mentioned the piece that we've done about Klopp and he, he places so much emphasis on training. Pretty much every decision that he makes is based around the standard of the training. And if somebody's not training well or somebody is training well, either decreases or increases their chances of playing. So I would say that under Klopp, it's it's probably more professional than it's it's ever been at Melwood, the, the sort of the atmosphere around the place. And he wants things done properly. You know, it's not... I agree with what you're saying there, Steve. I think there's been times in the past where maybe it's almost been um, a little bit too, too, too relaxed, it, it felt at times. I know that was a bit of a criticism of Brendan Rodgers when he was in charge, that that it wasn't as serious mm. towards the end, particularly the last years, as, as people would have liked to have been. And I definitely noticed a change as soon as Klopp came in. I mean, obviously when a new manager comes in, people tend to to to, to become a lot more serious about everything that they do. But that's, that's carried on for the last five years, really. I mean, t- training is the most important thing while out on the training field. You know, it's, it's all or nothing. And I think that's the connection with Liverpool's past, really, at the moment, that, that the players used to regard... That training was so important that it was so competitive and it's the same under Jurgen Klopp and I think that's why there's he he believes that the team should always train at the way that the, in the way that they play so I mean you've got to be fit to play for his team and I mean it's it, it, it's his club now Melwood was he turned Melwood into his into his place and I'm sure he's he's already had a, a ma- major hand in in the designs around the new site of Kirby and, and the facilities and, and the atmosphere that will be there. So it's very got very much got his fingerprints all over all over the train, new training ground. Let's finish this week's um, Red Agenda with a look at Harvey Elliott. So uh, myself and Kiva braved the cold of Blackburn Rovers at the weekend. Different ends of the press box, mind you. But we're privileged almost to watch this young lad excelling on his lone spell and playing like an adult in what is a tough league what what did, what did you make of his performance Kiva Blackburn against QPR 
Well, I thought he was the, the best player on the pitch. You know, Adam Armstrong got a couple of goals, but, um, you know, I was pretty much watching Harvey for the most of the game, so maybe that's why I thought he was the best on the pitch. But, you know, the quality he's got, even in, you know, the warm-ups, he was, like, trying to nutmeg teammates, and there was a, a moment where he just, like... I think it was just a half time when the practice balls were out and he chested a ball just like that had been pinged across into a bag. Like everything he does is with finesse. He's just an incredible footballer, but he's just 17. I think he'd be 18 in April. You know, you, when you watch him, you just know every time I've seen him and especially in person, when you watch him live, you just realise that, you know, this kid's a very very special footballer and you know we know he's got a long way to go but he's in the perfect place I think with Tony Mowbray and, and at Blackburn I think it's a great place for him to develop and it looks like he's doing that straight away and sort of you know get the feel I got from sort of you know speaking to obviously hearing the manager speak after the game and a couple of the the players was how much you know he's been a breath of fresh air he's come in and he's just hungry to learn and sort of improve his game and one of the things I think Tony Mowbray said was that basically Liverpool think and he sorted himself that he's almost too he's not selfish enough at times like he always wants to assist people rather than take it on himself and I think that's what this season will give him is to you know there was times when he probably could have just blasted it on his left foot and and take it on a little bit more and you know i think as the season goes on he'll probably get the courage yeah. and the confidence to do that i mean he's got confidence and just bucket loads anyway to to watch him on on saturday it was it was cold wasn't it but it was a real honor to to watch him and i think um liverpool fans should be very excited i mean oh. we've been excited for a while as soon as he arrived from fulham where he'd you know been the youngest ever player there at 15 um he's a very exciting talent and i think he, he there's a lot to come from him and i think the thing i was most impressed with was how he sort of just manages the game like he was setting the tone for blackburn and every sort of pass i think this was the one thing that struck me every pass it almost forces like his teammates to do something like He's almost telling them with the past where to be and what to do next. And he's pointing a lot and shouting and he's, you know, he's got his voice on the pitch. And, you know, he's 17. The championship is a very tough league to go into and to put in performances like that. And obviously I've got to mention his assist for Adam Armstrong, which was just, you know, pinpoint perfect. He just reads it so well. I think Mowbray said after the game, you know, the feeling in his feet and, that's what it is. You, you can't really buy that mm. or teach it. I think it's just, it's either in a player or it isn't. And, you know, we know a lot of players who get by and have professional football careers without that feeling in the feet. But, you know, Harvey Elliott's got it and he's got it in bucket loads. And, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to, to watch his, his career develop and obviously to watch him this season. Yeah, great combination, him and, and Adam Armstrong. Armstrong scoring a ridiculous amount of goals and obviously helped uh, buy him this season. Even at 17, the one thing that stands out to me, Si, that the trust from Tony Mowbray, you know, he's given corners free kicks, but then to go beyond that, the trust from your teammates, and and they all seem to want to try and find Harvey Elliott with the ball. Yeah, well, we've just been talking about training there. I mean, you speak to any footballer and they tend to form an impression of a new sign and... Um, within the first ten minutes, really, <laughs> when they when they start training, and uh, it's it's quite clear if he's being given free kick corner responsibilities that, that clearly he's made a, a big impression. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not that surprised to hear he's doing doing well. Uh, to be honest, you think think back to that 
to the Aston Villa game when Liverpool lost 5-0 in the League Cup last season and he he was several levels above the rest of his teammates and gave gave Villa's left-back Neil Taylor a really tough night that night and I remember I could see Taylor talking to him as he came off the pitch and he was you know blown for tugs even though Villa had, had obviously given Liverpool a bit of a hide in the end he, he, he treated the game really well he, his levels didn't fall below what a first team player's levels would fall to he, he played the game you know with a high intensity and I just, I just think there's a bright future for him but again I, I think that the interesting thing for him is he'll be he'll have watched what's happened to Ian Brewster I suppose and and he won't want that to go the same way he'll want to be a first team player at Liverpool. I know obviously there is a potential way back for Brewster, uh, who's a very exciting young player, but he, he'll be determined to go to Blackburn to make that a success and then potentially have another loan spell at a Premier League club and, and make sure that next season that he, he, he flourishes at the highest level of the game. And it's it's easy to forget. I mean, we were just speaking there before we started the pod. I mean, I, I didn't realise he's not even 18 until, until April. It, it just shows you sort of what level he's at. But that the only other thing is, of course, trying to get into this Liverpool team at the moment with the, with the world class players he's got in front of him. It's not going to be any easy task, but he, he's certainly got the swagger and the uh, and the technical abilities. I think to to have a good go at it, and and hopefully, hopefully he'll finish. He'll have a really good season at Blackburn. Check out uh, Kiva's brilliant piece on the Athletic right now on Harvey Elliott. Many thanks to uh, Cy and Kiva as always, and the Red Agenda returns in a week's time. Mm-hmm.